0: Well, welcome and happy Father's Day to everyone. And today we are going to dedicate the show to two fathers, not the ones that you're thinking of. We're going to talk about the fathers of chemistry. We're going to talk about Antoine Lavoisier and Robert Boyle. But first, uh, let me toss out a question. What would you be doing if you were cavorting with the green fairy? What would you be doing if you were cavorting with the Green Ferry? If you know the answer to that, you give us a call, 514-790-0800. Also, if you want to contact us uh, by text, it's 514-800. For those of you who may not be familiar with this show, we are approaching my 40th anniversary here, which will be sometime in the next two, three weeks. I don't remember the exact date when we started 40 years ago. But uh, we are going to have a, a show within the next couple of weeks uh, where I will review some of the interesting things that happened and how this all came to be. And I have managed to to track down a few cassette tapes I made uh, throughout history. And uh, I also purchased a device that can now transfer the cassette tapes onto uh, a thumb drive so we should be able to listen to them. And uh, that will be coming up in the next couple of weeks. This morning, uh, I asked a question on the trivia show about why the U.S. uh, Midland uh, farming community was known as the Cobb and Catalog Belt. And eventually someone did get that answer, and it had to do with the outhouses that were uh, found on most farms in those days. And, Although paper was already available, and uh, toilet paper, in fact, was first used uh, in the sixth century by uh, by the Chinese, it had not come into common practice because uh, catalog paper was available and it was free. Also, corn cobs were readily available. So in many uh, outhouses on farms in the mid-U.S., You would have a container of corn cobs, and also hanging on the nail would be a catalog, very often the Sears catalog, and uh, you just rip off pages, or you would use a corn cob after you have answered uh, nature's call. It seems kind of crude to us, but that's the way things were in those days. It really wasn't. Till the late eighteen hundreds, that toilet paper came into relatively common use, and was only after the introduction of the flush toilet, because the uh, flush toilet did not take kindly to rough, crumpled paper being put down there, because the um, the S shape in the uh, in the in the plumbing would get clogged with the paper, and that uh, S was a very important feature at the bottom of the uh, toilet because it prevented uh, gases from the septic tank into which the stuff was flushed from coming back through the toilet. And uh, the fine tissue paper that was uh, developed in the late 1800s did not clog up the toilet the way that catalog uh, paper did. And uh, today, of course, uh, we have uh, uh, all kinds of toilet paper, two-ply, three-ply, softer, harder, etc. And of course, we worry about running out. And at the beginning of this whole COVID crisis, there was a run on toilet paper because... um, People thought that we would be running out, having to be ensconced in our homes, wouldn't be able to go out and buy toilet paper, etc. Of course, uh, that that worry never really materialized, and uh, we have ample supplies of uh, toilet paper. This was not the first time, though, that toilet paper uh, was said to be in short supply. That happened back in 1973. That was a very interesting story because it was prompted by a joke made by Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson, of course, at that time was the host of the Tonight Show. And uh, he had just read about uh, a comment made by um, a senator uh, who, uh, suggested that there might be a shortage of toilet paper coming. Well, it turned out that there was no shortage of toilet paper coming. He had made this remark because the paper industry in his home state, which was, uh, I think it was Oregon, uh, the paper industry was uh, having some problems, and he wanted to boost the manufacturing of paper. So he started talking about how there could be a shortage. Well, there was not a shortage until Johnny Carson said this uh, on his show and kind of poked fun at it. But uh, the suggestion was that there might be something to this and people rushed out and they bought toilet paper and there really was a toilet paper shortage after that. Just goes to show you that Johnny had remarkable uh, power and uh, just a, a joke that uh, you know lasted just a few seconds on the show had a huge uh, impact. Uh, Toilet paper is produced in in, uh, huge amounts, of course, and over the years there have been some concerns about the manufacturing process, because in order to get uh, the really white toilet paper, uh, you have to bleach the paper. And the bleaching process that was used up to, oh, about 10 years ago, uh, was with uh, elemental chlorine. And that resulted in the formation of small amounts of dioxins. Uh, Dioxin is a a very, very nasty set of compounds. It is never made on purpose. It's always the product of some sort of industrial process, byproduct. And in this case, uh, dioxin was produced because some of the compounds that break down from lignin in paper react with chlorine and uh, they form these uh, chlorinated compounds, these dioxins. So there was concern about that, but uh, there never was any real risk associated with that because, uh, first of all, the dioxin was present in paper in vanishing small amounts, and it does not get absorbed through the skin. But nevertheless, there was worry about it, so processes were developed to bleach the paper in different fashion. And uh, when you bleach the paper with different chemicals like hydrogen peroxide or chlorine. And dioxide uh, that does not result in the formation of, um, of dioxins. There was also a concern about colored toilet paper, and that goes back to the 1970s and, and uh, 1980s when you could buy toilet paper in virtually any color that you wanted. You could buy toilet paper to match the color of your bathroom. Well, in this case, it turned out that there was actually a health issue. People started showing up in doctor's offices with irritation of their behinds, and it turned out that they were developing allergic reactions to some of the dyes that were used in the toilet paper. And that's why these days you will not find uh, uh, dyed toilet paper, although you will, uh, on occasion, find toilet paper with various kinds of writing on it, usually as a joke item. And uh, although I haven't seen any reports of, uh, uh-huh rectal reactions to these, it's conceivable that that could happen because of course various colored inks are used. And one that is uh, uh, popular sort of as a joke item is is toilet paper that is printed with uh, images of various politicians. And as you can imagine, the one that uh, is printed with the present uh, president uh, is enjoying huge sales in the US. And whether or not it uh, causes uh, a pain in the butt the same way that uh, the president may do, uh, is hard to know. But these days, uh, in vogue is white toilet paper, and uh, no dyes are added, so there's no possibility of um, allergic reactions. Of course, when it comes to toilet paper, there's always the immortal question, should it be over or under when you put it on the dispenser? And uh, I'll let you in on, on my view, uh, I prefer the toilet paper over. Anyway, so much for scatology today. Uh, I asked you the question about the green fairy. We'll see if you have any answer to that one, and we'll come back and talk about some of the fathers of chemistry. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Okay, let's see if uh, Malia has an answer to my question. Hi, Malia. Um, is it absinthe? Yes, it is. It's absinthe, exactly. Uh, absinthe was known as the green fairy, And uh, it is a drink that was brewed from the wormwood plant with supposedly hallucinogenic effects, but that, that really doesn't happen. That was that was um, a concoction, you know. That uh, was somehow conceived by people who were against drinking uh, of absinthe. It never really did anything harmful. Certainly yeah. not more harmful than drinking alcohol. But it was certainly yeah. a green uh, beverage. And uh, yeah. when you were drinking it, you were said to be cavorting with the green fairy. Very good. <laughs> okay. Good answer. Thanks very much. Thanks. All right. Um, before we get down to talking about uh, Lavoisier and Boyle, uh, just a little bit about uh, COVID. I mean, of course, you know how can we not talk about uh, uh, COVID and grocery shopping? A lot of questions come up about that. Uh, as I've said many times, I don't think that there's a need to to be neurotic about wiping things when you bring them into the house because that is not a the uh, way that this virus gets transmitted it's get tra- it's transmitted person to person in little droplets or in aerosols by sneezing coughing breathing on each other uh, in theory of course if you touch something that someone has coughed on and then touch your face and your nose it's possible to to transmit the virus but that's a very very unlikely scenario now what about all the online grocery shopping that people are doing? Instead of going to the grocery store, they're buying things online. The question is, is this better or worse for the environment? And it depends of course on to whom you listen. If you listen to Jeff Bezos, who of course owns Amazon, the Washington Post and also many other things, uh He uh, has come out with a calculation, pretty detailed calculation, showing that if you buy online, you're actually benefiting the environment. Why? Because if you have individuals all going to the grocery store, if you just take into account the driving, everyone driving by themselves, that uses up a lot of gas. Whereas if you're ordering online, the one truck that delivers will make many stops and therefore will use less, uh, less gas. And also many of the delivery trucks these days are, are very efficient in, uh, in the way that their engines have been, um, have been designed. And uh, there's something else And that is the temperature control in the grocery store as opposed to the depots from where the massive distribution of uh, groceries takes place if you order online. In the uh, grocery store, they have to keep the temperature comfortable for uh, the shoppers. And uh, that means that you have to have rather warm temperatures in the shopping area. And of course, there's some areas that you have to keep very cool uh, because of the food spoilage possibility. Whereas in these depots, they can keep the temperature steady at, at whatever is best for the food, because all you then have to have is the, the workers do proper warm gear. Anyway, the calculations have been done, and, and that uh, uh, be just because of the temperature control, you would be saving energy by buying uh, online. Of course, If you're buying online, it also depends on on how you are doing the shopping. If you are buying uh, one item here, two items from another place, uh, another item from somewhere else, each of which require different deliveries, then of course it's not the same as making one order, getting just one box. And uh, in that case, probably it is more environmentally friendly. Then people also ask questions about all of these services now that are delivering food to you ready to cook, Uh, like good foods, these kind of things. And um, uh, they are indeed very good. I, I must say I have tried some of them. They will deliver you the food. Uh, whatever needs to be chopped up, it's usually cut up. Uh, everything is is properly packaged, and it comes with uh, detailed instructions on how to uh, cook the meal. And uh, what I've uh, enjoyed about it is is that you— Get to cook meals that you otherwise would not. Uh, I think most people, even those who are not very adept in the kitchen, uh, can make your you know simple foods. You can make your tomato sauce, your your spaghetti, your hamburgers, your roast, etc. But uh, with these delivery services, you get to try meals that you would otherwise not uh, not try. However. The downside here is is the, the packaging. And there is a lot of packaging because the whole thing comes in a big cardboard box and each item inside is, is packaged in, in plastic. Now, supposedly, all of this is recyclable and certainly the plastic bags uh, that uh, you get the vegetables in and, and the meat and whatever else, uh, those plastic bags certainly can be put into the recycling bin uh unfortunately the big boxes that it comes in which used to be taken back by the company are no longer taken back and uh, this has something to do with worries about the coronavirus i don't quite uh, understand that i I don't think that that would be a, a big issue so um Environmentally, I think that there are some issues with uh, uh, with these meals, but let's face it: uh, in this uh, strange era of of COVID, uh, cooking has become more important, and variety has become more important. And uh, there are lots of very, very good nutritious meals that are available from these uh, these services but uh, I just wish that they would take back the uh, uh, cardboard box. Also, of course, it comes um, in in the box. uh, You get uh, these cooling pads and those are frozen when you you get them and inside you have uh, uh, an interesting uh, material it's a a polymer uh, which absorbs water so uh, the polymer is in this uh, bag Uh, they add water to it and then they freeze it and uh, the water is held in by this uh, uh, by the plastic and uh, the whole thing stays uh, very cool so it's a nice way to, uh, you know, keep the whole package cool. Uh, it's a it's a clever business, and uh, while you know I, I say that there are issues here in terms of the uh, environment, uh, it is also true that there is less waste, because generally I find when you make meals at home, there is significant amount of waste when you're cutting and chopping. You throw a lot of stuff away, and. Uh, In this case, it comes all prepackaged, and you're using everything that is delivered. Now, of course, you can also ask the question: Well, what happened at the original place where the chopping was done? Uh, what did they throw away? I don't think that we can make all these kind of, of calculations. But you know what? Uh, these days, uh, in this era of COVID, all of these things seem so trivial. Worrying about uh, exactly, you know, uh, how much gasoline you use going to the store as opposed to the truck when we're, you know, looking at life and death situations. Situations with COVID, okay, I rambled on too much about that, uh, and I don't want to take away time from from talking about the fathers of chemistry, about Lavoisier and Boyle. So I assure you that we will do that. Well, miracles of molecules, of course, that is a description of chemistry. So let me go back to 1789 when Antoine Lavoisier, who one would call the father of modern chemistry, wrote a book. And, uh, of course, it was in French, Traite Elementaire de Chimie. Uh, And uh, at McGill, in the chemistry department, we actually have a copy of that book. It's now yellow and brittle. Language is archaic. Diagrams are hand-drawn. But it is probably the most famous chemistry book ever written because it was written by Antoine Lavoisier, the father of modern chemistry. And, of course, there's a story behind it. Lavoisier was an arrogant man. He was often criticized for not giving credit to others. A criticism he shrugged off with the casual explanation that the one who chases the hare is not always the one who eats the stew. But it transformed the science of chemistry from an archaic and eclectic collection of theories and reactions to a modern systematic discipline. And he lost his head not once, but twice. That was Antoine Lavoisier father of modern chemistry. Young Lavoisier followed in his father's footsteps and in 1763, at the age of 20, became a lawyer. But it was not law that captured Antoine's imagination. It was a popular lecture on science. A friend had dragged him to the Jardin du Roi in Paris to watch the antics of scientific lecturer par excellence, Francois Ruel, Lavoisier was absolutely mystified by the smokes, smells, and flames that highlighted the presentation. This was stuff he could really get into. Chemistry, he realized, was his calling. Within a year, Lavoisier had produced a scholarly paper on the making of Plaster of Paris, and had become involved in the making of a geological map of France. His scientific progress was so rapid that in 1768, he was elected to the prestigious Royal Academy of Science. Dabbling in science, though, was not financially lucrative. Lavoisier decided to secure his financial future by buying a share in the Ferme Générale, a private agency that collected taxes for the king. The Ferme Générale was not popular with the people. Neither was Lavoisier's suggestion that a wall be built around Paris to discourage smuggling. Some claimed that the tax agency was actually attempting to poison the inhabitants of the city by keeping out fresh air and keeping in deadly exhalations. This, of course, was nonsense. Amazingly enough, though, it was the study of air and exhalations that eventually brought Lavoisier everlasting fame. But first, there was a matter of a little personal chemistry to deal with. At the age of 28, the fledgling chemist fell in love with and married 14 year old Marie Pauls. The union turned out to be an extremely successful one. Marie became interested in her husband's work and kept meticulous records of his experiments. She was also a gifted artist and chronicled his experiments in detailed drawings that have been reproduced in numerous textbooks to this day. One of these drawings illustrates the equipment Lavoisier used in his classic experiment to show that substances which burn in air gain weight. He concluded that the extra weight must have come from some component of air, which was absorbed during combustion. Lavoisier called it oxygen The name was coined from the Greek meaning acid former because Lavoisier mistakenly believed that all acids contained this substance. But he wasn't wrong about his conclusion that air was composed of one fifth oxygen, the eminently breathable part of air, and four fifths of some inert material, which he named azot, from the Greek for no life. We know this gas, of course, as nitrogen. Once Lavoisier had established that oxygen was the eminently breathable part of air, he began to wonder what exactly happened in the body when it was inhaled. One of his most famous experiments involved a guinea pig living under an atmosphere of oxygen. Lavoisier determined that in the process of respiration, oxygen was converted into fixed air, which was soon recognized as carbon dioxide. Furthermore, by surrounding the guinea pig with ice, he showed that the production of carbon dioxide was accompanied by the melting of ice. Poor guinea pig. Heat was being released from the animal's body, and that's what melted the ice. When an experiment showed that burning charcoal, a relatively pure form of carbon, produced the same proportions of carbon dioxide and heat as the guinea pig, Lavoisier concluded that the animal's body quote, burned food to generate body heat. The experiment also indelibly etched the expression to be a guinea pig into our vocabulary. Now Lavoisier decided to stretch his inquisitiveness even further. He needed a human guinea pig. One of his assistants fit the bill nicely. As shown in one of Madame Lavoisier's most famous sketches, the assistant was fitted with a mask that allowed him to inhale oxygen and then breathe into an apparatus designed to collect and identify the components of the exhaled air. Humans too, it appeared, inhaled oxygen and exhaled carbon dioxide. Life involved some sort of combustion process. Over the next 10 years, Lavoisier unraveled many of the mysteries of this slow combustion process. He showed that if a body was doing work, oxygen intake increased as it did if the body was subjected to cold temperatures. Food, it seemed, was being burned to supply the needed energy, and this required oxygen. Even when the body was completely at rest, oxygen was being taken in and carbon dioxide was being released. Combustion was still going on to meet the energy needs of a beating heart, expanding and contraction of the lungs, and a myriad of other bodily processes. The energy requirement came to be known as the basal metabolic rate, one of the cornerstones of the modern science of nutrition. Lavoisier fathered not only chemistry, but nutritional science as well. The brilliant Frenchman's legacy will be with us forever. His historic Traité Elementaire de Chimie was the world's first real chemistry text. In it, Lavoisier introduced a whole new system of nomenclature, which was still used today. No longer would chemists refer to oil of vitriol or flowers of zinc, Instead, names like sulfuric acid and zinc oxide, which reflected the actual composition of the substances in question, were systematically introduced. Elements were clearly defined as substances which could not be further broken down by chemical means. Chemistry was clearly becoming an organized science. Accolades and riches should have reigned on Lavoisier for his accomplishments, but this was not to be. His original involvement with the Femme Generale came back to haunt him. In 1793, during the Reign of Terror which followed the French Revolution, Lavoisier along with other members of the hated firm were arrested on a trumped-up charge of having mixed water and other harmful ingredients into tobacco. On May 8, 1794, Lavoisier was tried, found guilty, and was immediately guillotined. A fellow scientist who observed the tragic event commented, "It required only a moment to sever his head." and probably 100 years will not suffice to produce another one like it. A century after Lavoisier's death, a statue was finally uh, erected in his honor in Paris, but the sculptor had made a grave error. He had modeled the head after a bust in the Academy of Sciences, which he believed was that of Lavoisier. It was not. For the second time, the great scientist had lost his head But even the wrong-headed statue no longer exists. During World War II, it was unceremoniously melted down by the invading Germans to make bullets. So now you know a little bit about one of the fathers of chemistry. We'll learn about another one, Robert Boyle, an Englishman. A couple of years ago, I was flying back from Toronto. That was at a time when you didn't worry about flying and you didn't care who was sitting beside you. You weren't worried about what they may or may not be exhaling. Anyway, sitting next to me was a little boy He was playing with several bags of peanuts, the ransom extracted from the flight attendant in return for being quiet during the flight. He played happily with the unopened bags throughout the flight, but his face began to show some concern when we landed. The bags had noticeably decreased in volume, prompting the youngster to ask his mother where the peanuts had gone. The puzzled lady had no answer and ended the episode by telling her son to stop asking so many silly questions. So obviously, she did not remember Boyle's law. Robert Boyle was born in 1627 in Britain, and was sent off to study at Eton. One evening, he was outside watching a spectacular display of lightning and began to wonder why he was not struck. In a rather unscientific fashion, he concluded that God must have reserved him for some special task. From that moment on, Boyle dedicated himself to demonstrating God's glory by unraveling the secrets of nature. Boyle became interested in an experiment that had been performed in Germany by Otto von Gericke. In the early part of the 17th century, von Gericke had heated a hemispherical copper bowl filled with water until the water boiled. He then fitted a second bowl over the first one, leaving just enough space at the joint to let steam escape. After the heat source was removed, Von Gerike discovered that the bowls had become sealed so strongly that two teams of horses couldn't pull them apart. The steam had driven out the air, and when the steam inside the sphere condensed back to a liquid, a partial vacuum was created. The two hemispheres were now held together by outside air pressure. That may sound a little complicated, but the fact is that most of us have carried out a version of this classic experiment in our kitchens. When the lid is removed from a boiling pot and placed on the counter, it often sticks like glue. The trapped steam condenses and creates a vacuum. It isn't surprising that Boyle was fascinated by this effect and began to study the relationship between air and pressure. Boyle's classic experiment was a marvel of simplicity. He took a J-shaped tube sealed at the short end and proceeded to trap air inside by filling the tube with mercury. He found that the volume of the trapped air varied with the amount of mercury he used and formulated the law that is now studied by every high school student around the world. The volume of a gas is proportional to the pressure exerted on a gas. This is exactly what my little traveling companion experienced. As the airplane gained altitude and the pressure in the cabin decreased, the volume of the peanut package increased. On landing, the reverse effect was observed. I didn't feel it was my role to enlighten the young man and his mother about the subtleties of Boyle's Law, but this was not the case when I took my daughter, when she was small, the one who's now 26, to a production of Sesame Street Live. Needless to say, such an outing required the purchase of a souvenir, which in this case was a helium-filled Mylar balloon in the shape of Elmo. Also, needless to say, the balloon didn't make it back to the car. Its escape into the great beyond, of course, elicited tears, but also prompted a question about what would now happen to Elmo. Actually, this was not an easy question to answer. If the balloon had been made of rubber, it would have expanded in size as it floated up, in response to the decreasing air pressure. But temperature decreases with altitude, and gases contract with lower temperatures, This effect is then expected to shrink the balloon. We therefore have two factors, working in opposition. Calculations, however, show that the expansion due to reduced pressure is more significant and that as the balloon rises, it should eventually burst. Luckily, this was not the likely fate of the ELMO balloon. Mylar is made of polyester coated with a thin layer of aluminum. It was originally developed to serve as a heat-reflective material to be used in the space program. Mylar does not have elastic properties, but is very strong. So ELMO could rise to great heights without bursting. In all likelihood, the helium eventually would diffuse through the plastic membrane, and the collapsed balloon would fall back to Earth. This was a comforting thought, but of course, did not negate the demand for replacement ELMO, which still exists the origin Elmo, and it's adored, although it is in rather anemic shape due to the loss of some helium by diffusion. Uh, Boyle's Law has some unusual connections as well. As described in the New England Journal of Medicine, a lady tour showed up in the emergency room of a hospital in Frisco, Colorado, complaining of a swishing sound in her breasts. X-ray quickly revealed the source of the problem. It seems that the patient had a saline breast implant, which is basically a plastic bag filled with salt water. Such implants, however, are not completely filled with water and therefore have air pockets. The lady had come to high altitude Colorado from sea level and according to Boyle's law, the air pockets had expanded due to the lower external pressure. The water inside now had room to switch around. And that's a true story unlike the tale going around about the flight attendant who purchased an inflatable bra and experienced an explosion after takeoff. Although such devices do indeed exist, a small change in volume due to a decrease in cabin pressure is not enough to cause a spectacular effect that is alleged. That story is an urban myth that deserves to be deflated. But now you know something about Robert Boyle, one of the fathers of chemistry with the introduction of Boyle's Law, that the volume of a gas varies depending on the amount of pressure that is applied and we have some pressure here to get out because our time is up and uh, we've run through all the material that i was going to talk to you about And uh, happy Father's Day to Lavoisier. Happy Father's Day to Robert Boyle. And happy Father's Day to all of you other fathers out there. We will be back with you, same time, same station, next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.